most of us, I believe, are familiar with the bumper sticker that, in my opinion, clearly captures this world's definition of success. The bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, someone came along with a clever sequel to that particular bumper sticker, and I think it speaks for itself. It's a catchy slogan, and it says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. You know, in the, la the last time we were together, we saw or we learned that God has his own definition of success. And success, according to God, is the knowledge of and the obedience to God-given goals. Success to God is the achievement of God-given goals. And uh, King Solomon, a man who clearly or certainly qualifies as one with the most toys, came to this conclusion at the end of his life. And he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says this. Here's a man with all the toys, and if it was by our definition, he clearly would have won something. But he says, the conclusion when all is heard and said and done is, number one, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. A man with all the toys came to the same conclusion as a clever sequel to the bumper sticker. And Solomon's conclusion was this. You know what? All the toys in the world do not keep you from the inevitable date that each one of us have according to God. It's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. And Solomon said that, you know what? You can have all the toys in the world, but you know, there's a day coming when he who dies with the most toys still dies. And he came to the conclusion that we are accountable for our actions before God. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Success, according to God, is to keep his commandments and to achieve God-given goals. And I like that because it kind of clarifies things. So, so today, and, and obviously the accountability that we have also falls in line with the area of finances. So today, in picking up where we left off, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 25. We'll pick up and look at the parable that we saw last week. And see four biblical principles of money management that are found in this particular parable. Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 14. Just so that each of us has a clear understanding of what a parable is, a parable is a story that is told for the purpose of illustrating a principle or a truth. The word parable broken down is para, which means being called alongside, which we get our English words parallel, which are parallel lines. Uh, paramedic, one who is called alongside, a medical technician. Um, uh, paramedic, paralegal, a person who works in the law profession. It's somebody who's not an attorney necessarily, but someone who works to help out in that particular field. And so when you, when you read these parables, we need to recognize and understand that these are stories that are told and they're called alongside reality or physical, the physical things around us to teach us a truth that we would have a dis difficult time maybe grasping or understanding. So as we look at these parables, understand that they are designed to speak a specific truth about a principle that God wants us to understand and apply in our life. And sometimes we get hung up on the details of the parable as if somehow the parable is a true story. And the parable is not a true story, but it's a story that's told to illustrate a principle or a truth that's different than the story. 
So as we're looking at these, don't get hung up on you know who this man was and who his servants were necessarily and how much was entrusted and all these things, but try to grasp the truth that is being mentioned as we go through it. And I think it becomes very clear and evident as we go through this exactly what God's trying to teach us in the areas of money management. Anyway, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, we read this. For it is like... Meaning that, you know, the kingdom of God is like. It's similar to the story that's about to take place and the principle that he's trying to teach. For the kingdom of God is like a man who is about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. The first thing that we saw when we got together last time was that God owns it all. The first truth that God wants to get across to us in this parable and many others in, in, in similar uh, teaching situations is that, again, it will be like a man who was going on a journey who called his servants or his own servants and entrusted his property to them. The kingdom of God is like this man who owns all this property, who's about to go away on a trip, whether it's a business trip or another trip of some sort's not mentioned. Maybe it's to represent, you know, as the Lord left this earth, he entrusted certain possessions to us, and he said, look, I'm going away, and you know what, I'm going to be gone for a while. And in the meantime, I'm entrusting these possessions to you. This principle of stewardship, or this goal that God has for each one of us, is to become better stewards with the resources that God has given us. Stewardship or a steward is one who manages the, uh, the assets or the resources of another person. So what the Bible clearly teaches all throughout is that God owns everything. The earth is the Lord, Psalm 24, 1, and everything that's in it. And all who live in it, everything is God's. And we need to recognize and understand that because the foundation for the principle of stewardship is that we've got to have a clear understanding that God owns it all. And as we go through it and we'll begin to realize there's three truths that emerge from this one principle. And the first truth is this. If God owns it all, and the Bible says that he does, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, hey, who are you to brag about anything that you have because anything you have, wasn't it given to you? Wow, that's a good question. Everything that you have, wasn't it given to you? And now there's some of us who say, but I worked hard for it. But then God would say, but who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you the intelligence to be able to do what you do? Who gave you the resources that you have so you can go out and work hard and make money? See, it all comes back to somehow or another, we're not in this alone, that God is the one who's responsible for all the abilities that we have. He has given us the talents that we have, the, the gifts that we have, all the, that we have, it's God who owns it all. And if that's true, we saw that God then can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with what is his. If God owns it all, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with what is his. Now, that's not hard to understand. You as parents who know who have assets or things that are at your disposal, and, and you've got children that you entrust certain things to, you know you can give them whatever you want, whenever you want, anytime that you want, if you want to do that, because it's yours to give. And you also know that you can withhold from that anything that you want, whenever you want, because it's yours to make that decision. We need to recognize it's no different with God. The second truth that emerges is that every spending decision then becomes a spiritual decision. Every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. You know, now, I don't want to make this so... Well, I'm not sure if you can ever make anything so spiritually... You know, I've heard it said, you know, something, someone could be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. But I'm not so sure that if we understand spiritual principles that that's ever really true. But I understand what they're trying to convey because sometimes we can over-spiritualize everything to the point where then we are, we're immobilized and we're frozen and we don't get anything accomplished. And I think that's what's meant by that saying. I hope so because that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. 
But what, what I'm trying to say is every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision because everything, every spending decision is a reflection on the fact that you understand that God owns it all. So if God owns it all, but I also want you to understand, too, that there's a lot of freedom in making these decisions that God gives us. For example, many years I spent working as a purchasing agent for a business. And in this particular business, I was an agent or a steward of the resources of another, of another party. It, it was a large corporation, and my job was to do the purchasing for this company. Now, I understood that there were certain parameters that I didn't have to check with anyone on. I mean, there was the day-to-day -day operational things, and there were certain spending limits that I didn't have to check with anyone that it was inherent in my position. I could do those without consultation of anyone. But I also recognized that whenever it went beyond a certain level, maybe there was a price increase, and we had to look at buying an exceptionally large purchase to bring into inventory, and it was going to tie up a certain amount of working capital. And we had to look to see whether or not there was going to be a good return on our investment, whether we wanted to tie up the working capital, whether we needed it for the products that we needed for the jobs, or whether it was going to hold up production of certain things. There were a lot of factors that were involved there that I needed to consult other people on that had to do with, will we do this or won't we do this? Now, to put this in simple terms, I look at it this way. There are certain freedoms that God gives us in meeting our basic needs that don't require a whole lot of consultation. God, should we eat today? You know, well, if you have the resources and you're hungry, then you should eat. Now, I mean, are you going to have to turn everything into this large time of prayer and, 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 and consultation with God and, and people around you? Uh, where should we go eat or should we eat in? Should we buy out? Should we, you know, you know don't, don't, don't drive yourself crazy. But when you, reach certain, when you reach certain decisions that go beyond the day-to-day -day meeting your needs of buying food and shelter and clothing and things of that nature that you need to survive, all I would say is this, that the spiritual decision is elevated to the point where, you know what, there are certain major decisions that every one of us make that we really should consult the one who owns the assets that we want to invest. And in this case, it's God's. If he owns everything, I would say spend some time and pray about it. If you're married, spend some time and consult with one another about it. If, if it's a decision that goes beyond your expertise, then consult those who are experts in that area that have a solid biblical foundation of what is right or wrong and what God says to do or not to do. And, and you know, and, and there's, there's, a, a, there's safety in a multitude of counselors as long as those counselors are reflective of what God says is right or wrong. So all I'm saying is at a certain point, you need to take it beyond just your own whims and decisions of making decisions and go beyond that. And what I would say is this. If you're married and you can't agree as husband and wife on whether you should make a, make a spending decision or not, then don't do it. Just wait. Wait until it's very clear to the both of you that it's the right thing to do. If God owns it all, then every spending decision is a spiritual decision. And we need to understand and recognize that. And it's a reflection of where we are spiritually, too. Number three is you can't fake stewardship. You just can't fake it. You can fake everything else in the Christian experience, in the Christian life, but you can't fake stewardship. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your, what your checkbook register registers is what you really believe about the resources that God's given you. So I mentioned last time we were together that we're going to go ahead and pass out our checkbook registers. Oh, I know. I left it in the car. Did you leave it in the car? Do you have it with you? You want to pass it around? Nah, let's forget it. I just, it's something. One of these days, I am going to do that. So, you know, and what's good about it is if you think it's going to be done one day, it may change the whole way that you live your life. But then on the other hand, isn't that the truth, though? If we're held accountable by God, and one day he's going to hold us accountable for everything that we did. See, whether, whether I initiate passing out your checkbook registers to one another... What I have learned to be true is this. God is still going to do that one day. So let's not fool ourselves. 
and let's not fake ourselves out and deceive ourselves. You know, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. You know, God's no fool. We may fake each other out, but we're not going to fool him. And as Solomon said, when it's all said and done, one day we're going to have to give an account for everything that we did. And this parable is going to teach that truth. Now, the second thing is, as, as we look at this, is that not only does God own it all, but we also realize that we are in a growth process. The second principle or financial principle is this. We are in a growth process. Look what he says in, in uh, Matthew 25, 21. The master replied and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You have been faithful in a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. You know, in reading through the Bible, it is an inescapable reality to know that our time on earth is temporary. And it's being used by God to train us for the future. And I think this parable clearly illustrates that truth. Listen to me and listen to me carefully. Our time here on earth is used primarily by God to determine our future destiny. Our time here on earth is used by God primarily foremost of importance to determine our future destiny. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that verse clearly summarizes God's plan for man. He sent us his Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for our sins, that whoever would believe in him and in that gift would receive what God says is eternal life. It determines our future destiny. Whoever rejects him, also, that determines their future destiny. So our primary purpose, or God's primary purpose for us here on earth, is to decide or determine where we will spend our future destiny. Which means this. There's either one or two places you're going to be. You're either going to spend that place in heaven with the Lord for all of eternity. And whatever that means from a time standpoint, it hurts your head thinking about it. But the reality of it is, is God invented time for the purpose of us to be able to regulate and understand that our time is winding down. And that isn't reality. What you see around you is not reality. It is not our final destiny. This is God's temporary mode to determine where we will spend our eternity. You're either going to spend it with him or you're going to spend it away from him. You're going to spend it in heaven with God, or you're going to spend it in hell, or technically what God calls the lake of fire for all of eternity. In heaven, there will be the blessings that come with being in the presence of God forever, and in hell, there will be all the cursing and weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and all the torment that goes along with it, and that's a reality. Whether you like it or not, that's the truth, and God's whole purpose for us today is to, for us to have the freedom to decide, do we want to spend it with the Lord forever, or do we want to spend it separated from Him? That's His primary purpose. Now, once you make a decision and say, I believe that God sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I believe it's by faith I'm saved through grace, the grace of God. It's a gift. I believe that, you know, there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. I believe there's nothing I can do to work my way to heaven. There's nothing I can do to earn it, that he did it all for me. And I believe him and I trust him. Then once you put your faith and trust in him, now he says, I've got a goal for you as one of my children. 
And my goal for you, a God-given goal, is that you would be a good steward with the resources that I will entrust to you during this temporary period while you're still here on earth. We need to recognize and understand that, you know what? Material possessions are a great, great tool that is used by God to help us accomplish these things. God uses finances in three ways to cause our growth. Number one, it's a tool that God uses. Number two is it'll be a test that he also uses. Or three, it's a testimony. Now, as far as the tool is concerned, if you recall in our study in the book of Philippians, we saw that the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 11, and 12, he said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what, it's, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Money and material possessions are a very effective tool that God can use to grow you and me up, to cause growth in our life. Therefore, we always need to ask this question. I have a friend, I think I mentioned to you, that has made probably $8 million in the last five years. And one of the things that is just absolutely driving him crazy is trying to figure out why God has blessed him with that much resource. Why? I know some of you are thinking, hey, I'd like to be able to ask God that same question. Why, God, did you bless me with $8 million in five years? I don't understand why. See, the problem is in our conversation together, I said, you know, maybe the question shouldn't be why. Maybe the question should be what? He said, what do you mean? I said, the question has to be, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me? What is it that you want me to learn about you, about stewardship, about resources, about what we're to be doing here in the short time that we have here on earth that we know isn't our final destiny, that he who dies with the most toys doesn't win, that still has to give an account before God? Maybe the question has to be then, what are you trying to teach me and what do I need to learn? And how are you using these, whether it's money or, or material things, how are you using these things to try to teach me those principles? You know, so many of us concentrate on always asking God, why? You know, why God? Why? Why are you doing this to me? You know, and it's always when we lose something. When we lose some material thing, we lose a job, we lose some money, we, we lose money in a, in a deal, you know, in a, in a financial deal, it doesn't turn out the way we thought. And the first question you always ask is, oh, why God? Why are you doing this to me? As if God's whole purpose in life is to frustrate and confuse us. God doesn't want to frustrate us. God doesn't want to confuse us. But he's going to use material things as a tool, an effective tool, I may add, to cause growth in our life so that we begin to ask, what do you want me to learn from this? How many of you have gone through that in your own personal life? Is it a very effective way to get your attention? I'll tell you this, whether God drops a windfall on you and a bucket of blessings, or whether he takes certain things away and removes them, it is a very effective way of getting your attention. What do you want me to learn? That's what he's trying to do. Now, I found that God can use money to cause growth in several different ways. Number one, in every one of these ways, God demonstrates something to, to us. 
he has in my personal life. He has as we go through the, through the Bible and learn what he has to say. But you know what? It's interesting to me is that God can use money to cause growth in several different ways. If you've got your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 6 for a second. Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, we see that God demonstrates his trustworthiness to us by using money and financial things, material things, possessions. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 32 and 33. It says, for all these things, speaking of material things, if we go back to the beginning of the context of this particular message, all the material things in life, he says, for all of these things, the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He says, but you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, God demonstrates his trustworthiness and that we can trust him to meet our needs. You know, one of the things that stands out in my mind as we go through the parable of the talents is that, that this, this man who went away on the journey and called his own servants to him and trusted with them an amount according to, listen to me, according to what? Their abilities. To one he gave five, to another gave two, and to another gave one. And he entrusted to them according to their abilities. So you ask a question, you know what? What I'm learning from this is, I can trust God. Listen to me. I can trust God to meet my needs and our family's needs, and I can trust Him to give us what we need according to what? What He has available? No. He he got it all available. He owns it all. He can give me anything that He wants whenever He wants. He can give you anything He wants whenever He wants. But the point is this. He will give it to us according to what? Our abilities. Man, that frees me up. Why? Because I know what I don't have, I don't have because God doesn't think we're ready to have it yet and He doesn't want to entrust it to us because He doesn't want it messing up our life. Think about this for a minute. The world that we live in, what's the worst thing that can happen to anybody in the world that we live in? And some of you are going to sit there and think of all these tragedies. And you know what? What I have found to be true? The worst thing that can happen to anybody in this lifetime is that they win the lottery. The worst thing that can happen to anybody in this lifetime is that somebody will die that had a lot of money and worked hard all their life and understood what it took to make it and were disciplined and understood how to manage it and they die and they leave it all to somebody who doesn't know how to deal with it at all. Now some of you are thinking, oh, I can think of worse things than that. But you know what? I'll tell you what. Spend some time with a person who has things handed to them and see how messed up their life gets. Isn't that the truth? Man, I, you know, and that's why second, second generation businesses always go on the toilet. Why? Because the, the kid doesn't understand what it took to earn a living. The kid doesn't understand what it took to be disciplined and to be there and to work hard and to manage the assets and, 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 to, and to manage their customers. The kid doesn't understand any of that. The kid always grew up seeing daddy go off to work and always had nice things. Then dad leaves and leaves it to the kid who doesn't know how to manage any of it because he's never spent any time and he, and he entrusts all this to somebody who, who really doesn't have any abilities at all. And then they wonder, oh, why? Why did the business go out of business? Well, because you, you gave something to somebody who wasn't ready for it. This is all I can say is this. Thank God he doesn't give me anything more than I can handle. And he knows what I don't know about me. He used it to demonstrate his trustworthiness. He used it to demonstrate his ability to supply. Folks, listen to me. Look at, look at Mark chapter, I mean Matthew 7, just skip over a chapter. It says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf will give him a stone? 
Or if you shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You know, God uses money to teach us that we can trust him, to teach us he has the ability to supply. God uses money to demonstrate his love. Because when you love someone, don't you try to meet their needs? If you love someone, you behold a brother, it says, if you behold a brother in need in 1 John chapter 3, and you behold a brother in need and you don't move and you're not motivated to meet that need, how can you say the love of God dwells in you? Any one of us who love another person want to meet in a physical way the needs of other people. Whether it's writing a check or giving them something they need or working for, for them in a way that helps meet that need, we all want to meet the needs of other people. And God wants to meet our need and he demonstrates his love. And what better way for, for God demonstrated his love for us that even yet while we're sinners, Christ died for us. He gave to meet our needs. God's a giver. And that really is the foundation for why we should give. It demonstrates his power. You know, God, you know, Jesus oftentimes, he used fish and loaves to multiply loaves and fish to feed thousands and thousands of people. Now, it wasn't because, you know, for any other reason than to teach him a lesson. And that was that God has an inexhaustible supply of resources available to meet our needs. It also, God uses money to help us move in his direction in life. God uses famines. God uses recessions. God uses depressions to move people into a position that he wants them to be in for his purposes so that we can achieve God-given goals. And you know what's funny about that is? Most of us moan and groan when God moves us from one place to another in a way that we don't like. The company shuts down. You've got to relocate. You've got to go somewhere else. You've got to move to another business. The company's having financial hardships. It's got to let people go. And you're going to be moved into another area, another position. You're going to be unemployed for a while. But you know what? All that time I found in my life is that God, as he's closing one door, he's moving us in another direction and he opens another door. And it's always better than it was before and it's always better than you could ever imagine. And as we trust him and realize God uses money and material things to direct us in life. And once we begin to understand that, oh man, I'll tell you what, it frees us up from saying, why God are you doing this to me? To, hey, what do you have for us in the future and where are we going with all this? You haven't let us down in the past. I don't think you're going to let us down in the future. We're going to go ahead and we're just going to trust you. We're going to move in the direction you want us to go. So if you're bitter and upset and angry over some way that God is directing your life, hey, you know what? Stop your bitterness now and just ask him to forgive you for it. Because now you realize, you know what? He loves you. And he wants what's best for you. And he's going to do whatever it takes to move you in the direction that he needs you to be for the purpose of you being able one day to accomplish God-given goals. Isn't that great? Now, we may not like the process, but it's good stuff. And in fact, you know, if you go back to the processes, hey, if God uses money as a tool, he also uses it as a test. How about the patriarch Job? What was the test that he went through? What did Satan accuse Job? He accused Job before God and he said this. God said, have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous and blameless man. And you know what Satan said? Yeah, he loves you. I'd love you too if I had all the stuff he has. Look at how you blessed him. Look at his house. Look at his ranch. Look at his land. Look at his children. Look at, look at all the stuff he's got. Look at all the money he's got. Look at his camels and ox and donkeys and all that stuff he's got. Man, he's got all kind of stuff. If I had all that, I'd love you too. So God said, well, hey, 
take it all away from them. Now, all this stuff was taken away. What was Job's response to the test? Well, Lord, I came here naked out of my mama's womb, and I'm going back the way I came. So blessed be the name of the Lord. The man had a good attitude when it came to stewardship. He had an open hand. He said, hey, I came here with nothing, and I'm going out with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So you know what Job learned? He learned that he never saw a hearse hauling a U-Haul. That's what he learned. Now, I know technically he never saw a hearse and he never saw a U-Haul. But if he had seen a hearse and a U-Haul, that's what he would have learned from it. So let's not get too hung up on what I just said because, you know, I thought it through myself, but it, it still makes a point. Even though some of you go, well, he never saw a hearse. He never saw a U-Haul. But the point is still there, isn't it? He never saw a hearse hauling a U-Haul because he learned you can't take it with you because he who dies with the most toys still dies and leaves them to people who didn't work for those toys to break. <laughs> now, one thing I do not fully understand and appreciate, in Luke 16, 11 through 12, we read this. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, or speaking of money or financial things, who will commit to your trust the true riches? It says, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? The question is this, God uses material things to trust us to see whether or not we are capable of handling true riches. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I don't fully understand or appreciate this, but what I do know is this. Somehow or another, your eternal position and my eternal position. Now, that doesn't mean whether you're going to be in heaven or in hell, because that's based on whether you trust Jesus Christ. But what we will be doing in the future and the responsibilities that we will have are somehow tied in to how we manage the resources that God entrusts in our hands today. I'll be honest with you. I don't fully understand it, but I do know that that is taught clearly throughout the Bible. That he is entrusting us with financial resources today to see how we will manage them and that will determine someday in the future, in God's future plan, what we will be doing at that future time. Now, whether it has to do with when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand-year reign, whether it has to do with what our positions of responsibility will be, that could be, that's speculation, that could be true, that could be possible. There's another parable that says that he was faithful in, in this, I will make him you know, a manager over a city or five cities or ten cities. I, you know, I, I don't fully understand and I, I don't want to get, go off on some crazy tangent, but I do know this. You can't miss the fact that we are entrusted with resources today in this temporary period while we're here on earth that are going to affect our position sometime in the future when God's future plan is unveiled. You can't miss that. What it is, I don't know. We'll all find out. But I guess the point is that we need to recognize that's true. And as far as the testimony is concerned, we'll talk more in detail about that because how we use these resources speaks very loudly to people around us what we really believe about our time here on earth, whether it's temporary or whether that's all there is. Whether we believe that he who dies with the most toys wins or whether we believe that he who dies with the most toys still dies and gives an accountability before God, that's all going to be determined and it's going to be laid out in front of people around you as to how you manage those resources. Number three, or the third principle, is this. The amount, 
the amount is not the issue. The amount is not the issue. See, in Matthew, in Matthew 25, verse 23, he says, His master replied and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Now come and share in your master's happiness or come and share in the joy of your master. The amount is not the critical thing. Because if you look at verse 23 and you've got your Bibles and you look back to verse 21, what do you find? You find that one man was given five talents and God commended him or his master commended him in the same way as the man who he gave two talents. So the amount is not the issue. We've got a problem in our culture somehow or another. Everything that we discuss has to do with quantity. The more, the better. The bigger, the better. And that's not always true. You know, being in the heating and air conditioning business, it always fascinates me when people call and say, you know, I want a bigger unit. Well, and you go through a bunch of questions, why? Well, because bigger is better. No, it's not. The right size is perfect. The size that you need for your business or your home is the right size. And it has nothing to do with how big it is. It has to do with the design of the building. So bigger isn't always better. Bigger doesn't even make sense most of the time. And so as we go through this, what he's saying is that, you know what? When you look at this, he's saying, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and I'll put you in charge of many. See, bigger's not the issue to God because God owns it all. Whether it's five or two, that doesn't make any difference to him. Whether it's 20 or two or 20 or three or 20 or 10 or whatever, it doesn't matter because that's arbitrary. The amount isn't the issue. You know, and there's so much controversy today in Christian circles over whether Christians should amass great material wealth or whether we should give it all away. First of all, I think extremes are always just that, extreme way of thinking. Should a, should a Christian accumulate great masses of resources? Well, you know what? If it's greed, obviously not. Should a Christian give away all of his, all the resources that's been entrusted to him by God? Well, if you lack wisdom and discernment, then, then that's just as foolish. So there's always these extremes, and we always tend to gravitate toward one or the other. But the reality of all of it is, is that, you know what? No, it's not. The, the, the quantity is not the issue. The issue is, as we'll see here, God never condemns wealth, and he doesn't condemn poverty. That's not the issue. The issue is our attitude. Our attitude of stewardship has to do with, you know what, the attitude God wants us to develop, he can choose to give us whatever he wants. He can choose to take away whatever he wants. The real issue is this. The attitude is the fourth principle, and we'll close on this, and that is the attitude of faith. It's the attitude of trust. The attitude that, you know what, faith requires action. The man who had received one talent came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. So here it is. This is what the master replied, You wicked and you lazy serpent. 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 So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Now take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, what's interesting as we look at this is, you know, the Bible says that faith requires action. If God entrusts his possessions to you, it requires action on our part. See, what's interesting to me is many of us know what we ought to do, but we disobey or we delay. 
Many of us know what we ought to do with the resources entrusted to us by God, but you know what we do? We do all kind of gymnastics, and it's always, well, I know, but. I know, but. I know, but I can think of some reasons why I don't want to do what God wants me to do, even though I know that they're His, but. It'd be like your child who you let use your car saying to you, I know it's your car, and I know you want to sell it, but I don't want you to do that. But I don't care. Because it's mine. And that doesn't work either. Some of us are like that. We're all, please, God, I know that you want me to do that with your resources that you've entrusted to me, but do I have to? Please? Well, that's choice. See, and we need to recognize and understand it. That's going to be our highest hurdle to overcome, isn't it? Knowing what we're supposed to do, but just not wanting to do it. Stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. That's really what it is. Stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. Do you really believe that your time here on earth is temporary and that God is using those resources to test you to see where your, your heart really is? Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or do you love the stuff that he's entrusted to you? Don't ever get those two confused because they're not the same. The use of God-given resources. The use of. That means you have to do something with it. It means that faith, like James says, without works is dead. Now, don't ever misunderstand something. Works is never what makes you right before God. It's faith in Christ. Works is an evidence of the fact you've put your faith and trust in Christ. Because faith without works is dead. And it's no faith at all, not biblical faith. But faith in Jesus Christ that prompts you and promotes you and pushes you toward action is biblical. We need to recognize and understand it. You know, last time as you were leaving, I think you took those little deeds with you, maybe. And really what I was trying to get accomplished by passing those deeds out to you was to have you at least think about the fact that, you know what, there are a lot of things in life that you call mine. These are mine. These are ours if you're married. These are, these are our resources. And what I was trying to do is challenge you to consider just sitting down and writing all those things down. What are all the things that I call mine? And at the end of all of that, understand that, you know what? They're not yours anymore. Because now you understand that God owns it all. And what I was hoping that you would do is sit down and recognize that, you know what? These things I used to call mine, I no longer call mine, but they're God's. And on this date, we have turned them over to you. And on this date forward, what we want to do is, God, we want to use these resources that you've given to me in a way that is pleasing to you so that I can accomplish your God-given goals in my life. Because I believe this life on this earth is temporary and it's only a training ground for what you have for us in the future. And God, help me to understand that, that that's what you're trying to do with the money and the things that you've entrusted to us. Let me close with the story. And I want you to think about that deed sheet that you had. If you sat down and wrote any of that, and if you want one of those, you can pick them up as you're leaving today. But if you sat down and wrote any of that, I want, I want to read this to you, and I want to challenge you to con- consider what's being said. A man goes into a jewelry store, and he says, I want this pearl. He says, how much is it? The seller says, well, it's very expensive. The buyer asks, but how much? 
Well, it's a very large amount. He says, well, do you think I could buy it? The seller says, of course, of course you can buy it. But, you did, but, but didn't you say it was very expensive? He says, yeah, it's very, very expensive. He says, well, how much is it? The seller says, it's everything that you have. We make up our minds. We think to ourselves, all right, I'll buy it. Well, the seller says, what do you have? He wants to know. He says, let's write it down. He says, well, I have $10,000 in the bank. He says, good, $10,000. What else do you have? That's all. That's all that I have. He says, you have nothing more? He says, well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. The seller says, well, how much? So we start digging. Well, let's see, 30, 40, 60, 80, $100. He goes, great, that's fine. What else do you have? That's all that I have. I don't have anything else. The seller says, well, where do you live? He says, well, I live in a house. The seller says, you have a house? He goes, well, I'll take the house too. And he writes that down. He says, you mean I have to move out of my house and live in my camper? And the seller says, what? You got a camper? I'll take that too. He goes, you mean I'm going to have to move out of my camper and I'm going to have to sleep in the car? He says, what? You have a car? I'll take that too. And he writes that down. He goes, well, then we're going to have to sleep in my wife's car? Oh, you had two cars. I'll take that one too. He says, what else do you have? The buyer says, well, you already have all my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? He says, are you alone in this world? He says, well, no, I have a wife, I have two children. He goes, oh, yeah, well, I'll take them too. He goes, what else? He says, I have nothing left. I'm left alone now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, he says, oh, I almost forgot. And I'll take you too. Hmm. Everything's mine. Your wife, your children, your house, your money, your cars. And you are too. Then he goes on and he says, Now listen, I'll allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't ever forget that they're mine. Just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up. Because now, I own it all. Man. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this. For those of us who have known and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You and me have been bought with a price. And the challenge is this. Therefore, let us glorify God with the resources that he has entrusted to us. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for the truth of your word and the liberation that takes place as we apply it in our life. God, we even thank you for the conviction and for the feelings of guilt that you give us that are justified based on your truth. And the standard that we fall short of, God, help us to not make excuses for what we should be doing in life, but to be faithful and to take action as we learn and we apply these truths. We just thank you for the results that are to follow. We thank you for the way that you'll free us up in this area of finances in our life, whether we're married or single, whether we're young or old, there's always something new to be learned from your word. God, help us to see it. Help us to have the strength and give us the strength to be obedient to it. And God, may we praise you for the results. In Christ's name, amen.